This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. It's a new year, and I'm looking forward to turning the page for a fresh start, like I know probably many of us are. I've also been looking forward to sharing more interesting true crime cases with you that I've either recently stumbled upon or that have been in my archive for some time. This year, I'll be doing something a little different now and again, starting with this series. Periodically, I'll be sharing with you a true crime mini-series with multiple episodes that follow one case or criminal. For example, some cases, such as those involving serial killers, or criminals who continued their nefarious activities for years or even decades before being identified and caught, often cannot be done justice in just one episode. These types of cases I've decided to tackle as a miniseries. This episode will feature the first one of these miniseries. On this first episode of 2021, I will be sharing a case that happened here in California over two decades ago, but it's one of those cases that has haunted me since I learned about it. I remembered very clearly the photo of a dark-haired little girl who smiled out from a missing poster with her two front teeth missing. She looked like any other little girl, just leaving the stage of early childhood, shedding her baby teeth and becoming a grade schooler, that promising time when parents began to nurture their children's talents and interests by signing them up for dance classes, attending their peewee soccer games, and throwing them themed birthday parties featuring their favorite colors or cartoon characters. These were all things that had been part of Ziana Fairchild's life before one horrible day in 1999. On that day, seven-year-old Ziana would be snatched off the streets of Vallejo, California, by a serial predator by the name of Curtis Dean Anderson, and never seen again. I will tell you the heartbreaking story about Ziana's life and death, how she was born into chaos, but was quickly blessed to be rescued by loving family members who gave her the kind of life every little girl deserves, one in which she was safe, happy, and loved. It would then be snatched away from her, first by being returned to an unstable home, and then when she was targeted by a predator. It's a story you won't soon forget either. This is the case of serial predator Curtis Dean Anderson, and this is part one, The Abduction of Ziana Fairchild. Ziana Lachey Kapuali Fairchild was given a beautiful and exotic name at birth. Maybe this was because the world she was born into was anything but beautiful or exotic. Ziana was born on a sweltering July day in 1992 inside a Nevada state prison. Her mother, Antoinette Robinson, was serving time on charges of auto theft and drug possession. But Ziana was rescued by her extended family who immediately fell in love with a tiny baby with dark hair and eyes. Her great-grandmother, Lita Domingo, took possession of the newborn and brought her to her home on the island of Oahu. In Hawaii, Ziana would grow up among aunts, uncles, and cousins and lived in a spacious three-bedroom home with a swimming pool. Ziana's great-aunt, Stephanie Kahalakulu, would become her de facto mother, raising Ziana alongside her own children, her son Devin and daughter Aubrey. 
Ziana called Stephanie mommy, and she considered Devin and Aubrey her brother and sister. The girls shared a room and also had another one as a designated playroom, decorated with their favorite colors, pink for Aubrey and purple for Ziana. Ziana's first years were filled with birthday parties, soccer matches, and sleepovers with her cousins. In 1997, when Ziana was five, Stephanie and her husband split up. Stephanie then moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado, along with her mother, Lita Domingo. Ziana would relocate with her family from the islands to live in the shadow of the snowy Colorado Rockies, but she still had the love and support of her family. She quickly adapted to her new home, where she would begin elementary school and made scores of new friends. Two years later, Ziana's biological mother, Antoinette Tony Robinson, contacted them. Robinson, who'd been released from prison sometime earlier, reported to Lita and Stephanie that she turned over a new leaf. She said she now attended church, was working full-time, and had even become engaged. She was ready to be a mother now, she said, and wanted Ziana back. Of course, this must have sent Lita, and especially Stephanie, into a panic. This woman, who called herself Ziana's mother, was a stranger to the little girl. Now Robinson insisted that Ziana be sent to live with her thousands of miles away in California. No matter how much Stephanie, Lita, or Ziana's entire family might object, they had no power to stop Ziana from being returned to her mother. They had never sought legal custody of Ziana and had no legal rights to keep her in Colorado. In June 1999, Ziana was put on an airplane and flown to the West Coast, where she met her mother for virtually the first time. She was now just seven years old. As any child might be, Ziana was excited to see her mother. Tony had begun making phone calls to her daughter, promising her the moon. She told Ziana about all the toys she had bought for her, how she was decorating her room in her favorite colors and characters, and how much fun they were going to have together. For Ziana, going to California to be with her mom probably sounded like a fun adventure. But rather than the Disneyland dreams Ziana had come to expect, life with her mother was far from what she'd been promised. In fact, her mother worked only sporadically and had very little money to purchase even the basic necessities for her daughter. Tony Robinson bounced between low-rent apartments in small towns around the San Francisco Bay Area. Shortly after Ziana arrived, Robinson moved to Vallejo, California. Vallejo, a town in Solano County, is known most notably as home to the former Mare Island Naval Shipyard, as well as the location of two murders attributed to the Zodiac Killer in the 1960s. When Ziana arrived in Vallejo, her mother was living in a studio apartment in the downtown area. She shared the flat with her boyfriend, Robert Turnbow, who everyone called Bobby. Like his girlfriend, Turnbow had done time in prison. He'd been charged with child endangerment after he'd scalded a girlfriend's infant son with hot water in 1995. Turnbow, an admitted drug user, said he'd been under the influence when the incident had occurred. Turnbow had also been accused by another ex of molesting their two-month-old son in 1994. He denied these allegations, and no charges were filed. Robinson bounced between jobs, and around the time that Ziana first came to live with her, she worked briefly as a cab driver for Vallejo City Taxicab. Turnbow as well worked sporadically, and it also worked for the same cab company. 
The couple shared a shabby studio apartment. One room contained a mattress on the floor where Robinson and Turnbow slept, a small couch, a few boxes that held their clothes and personal items, and not much else. There was no separate room for Ziana, so Robinson placed blankets on the floor of the apartment's closet that the seven-year-old used as a makeshift bedroom. Neither Stephanie nor Ziana's great-grandmother knew anything about her mother's living conditions or the fact that she was involved with a man who'd twice been accused of being a danger to children. If they had, I'm quite sure they would have fought harder to keep Ziana in Colorado, where she was safe. Ziana was a friendly little girl, but often seemed lonely, neighbors living at the Georgia Street apartment building said. They often saw her alone, wandering in the hallways. She would frequently start conversations with some of the neighbors. One woman with a baby and a toddler said she felt sorry for the little girl with the two missing front teeth. She would ask me every day the name of my baby. Every day I would answer her, but she kept asking. I think she just wanted someone to talk to, and this was her attempt to make friends, she said. Other neighbors sometimes invited Ziana inside their homes for a little while to play with their own kids or to have a snack. But when a parent never arrived to pick Ziana up, they began to grow concerned. At least one call to Child Protective Services was placed. The caller described the situation and asked authorities to visit her home to make sure Ziana's parents were caring for her appropriately. But as the case was not considered urgent, social workers told the caller that it may take up to 10 days before someone was dispatched to make a home visit. Before that could happen, seven-year-old Ziana Fairchild disappeared. On December 8, 1999, Ziana Fairchild had been living with her biological mother in Vallejo, California for six months. Tony Robinson would say that she, Ziana, and her boyfriend Bobby Turnbow spent that Wednesday evening together in their apartment. They ate dinner, watched a movie on video that Ziana loved about a little girl and her pet parrot named Polly. Ziana fell asleep in front of the television, her mother said, before she put her to bed in her closet slash bedroom. Whether these details are correct would be questioned later when it was determined that much of the information Robinson and Turnbow reported was either incorrect or straight falsehoods. The next day was Thursday, a school day for Ziana, who attended Mare Island Elementary School. Tony Robinson would later tell police, as well as a reporter for the Contra Costa Times, Christy Belcamino, that she woke up to the sounds of Turnbow's car driving away to drop Ziana at the school bus stop. Ziana usually walked to meet the bus about three blocks away, but Turnbow said it looked like it was going to rain, so he drove her there instead. He'd left her at the bus stop about 10 minutes before the bus was scheduled to arrive, he said. Before he drove off, Ziana had come up to his window on the driver's side, and Turnbow said she'd kissed him goodbye, saying, I love you, Daddy. I'll see you after work. It would turn out that none of this was true. Neither her mother nor Turnbow had seen Ziana leave the house that day, and Turnbow would later admit he'd lied when he'd said he'd driven her as far as the bus stop. This would lose investigators valuable time. Neighbors said they did see Ziana walking to the bus stop that Thursday morning. She was scheduled to return home around 1 p.m., but never made it. It was then that Robinson called the school and discovered that Ziana had been marked absent. The school bus driver was questioned and reported that Ziana had not gotten on his bus that morning. Robinson called Vallejo police and reported the seven-year-old missing. She described Ziana as having long dark brown hair, brown eyes, and an olive complexion. 
Robinson said that Ziana had left for school wearing a puffy purple jacket and gray sweatpants and sweatshirt. She was wearing a pair of black boots. Stephanie Kahalakulu was called in Colorado and told that Ziana, quote, had been kidnapped, unquote. To Stephanie, this made no sense. Their family wasn't rich, she thought. Why would anybody kidnap Ziana? She immediately made arrangements to fly to California. The whole time she told herself it was all a big mistake, and by the time the plane touched down in California, Ziana would be found safe. She envisioned bringing her back home to Colorado to make sure she never had such a scare again. But when she arrived in Vallejo, the search was still going strong. Volunteers and law enforcement officers searched the city and along the waterfront near where Ziana was last seen. A search center was opened and staffed by volunteers from the community and the Polly Class Foundation. Mark Class, whose daughter Polly had been abducted from her own bedroom by a stranger in 1993, had founded the organization to help parents of missing and exploited children. Two months after her abduction, 12-year-old Polly's body would be discovered 20 miles from her Northern California home. Richard Allen Davis was charged and convicted of Polly's murder and sentenced to death. I covered Polly Class's case in episode 21. Mark Class had become an advocate for parents of missing children. He now mobilized his organization to aid Ziana's family in her search and to get the word out to media outlets about Ziana's disappearance. Kim Swartz also traveled to Vallejo to help organize volunteer efforts at the search center. Kim was also a member of the Grim Club of Parents of Missing Children. Her daughter, Amber Swartz Garcia, was abducted from another Northern California town in 1988 and was still missing. Dozens of volunteers showed up daily to the Ziana Fairchild Search Center to answer phone calls, put up flyers, and conduct searches. A reward, initially offered at $10,000 for any information leading to Ziana's return, grew to over $75,000. Along with officers and volunteers who searched on foot, divers conducted underwater searches in the Mare Island Strait, a waterway that separated the city of Alejo from the Mare Island shipyard. Bloodhounds were brought into the search as well. The marshland surrounding Vallejo was also a focus of the searches. Beyond the dozens of volunteer searchers, over 100 trained search and rescue personnel and over 30 investigators from the police department and FBI spent days combing the area for the missing little girl. However, their efforts would prove fruitless and leads would dry up within a week. There were a few discoveries of note. Police searched the apartment where Ziana lived with her mother and Turnbow several times. During one search, they discovered clothes matching the description Tony Robinson had said Ziana was wearing the day she'd gone missing. In fact, the gray sweatpants had already been laundered. Two pairs of black boots belonging to Ziana were also found in the apartment. Tony had told investigators that Ziana owned exactly two pairs of boots. The purple jacket as well as Ziana's school backpack, featuring a Hello Kitty design, were also found still in the apartment. Robinson would have no explanation as to why Ziana hadn't taken her backpack with her that morning. By this time, investigators also learned about Bobby Turnbow's problematic history with children. He, as well as his extended family members, were questioned by detectives and FBI agents several times. 
It was during one of these interviews that Turnbull finally admitted that he'd lied about driving Ziana to school the morning she went missing. She had left on her own to walk the three blocks to the bus stop, he confessed. Neither he nor Robinson had been up that morning to see her off, and they weren't sure what she had worn when she left the apartment. He told police he'd lied because due to his past criminal record, he was afraid he'd be suspected in Ziana's disappearance. Over three weeks after Ziana disappeared, Turnbull underwent a polygraph test. He failed it, and while investigators continued to believe he was involved, they found nothing that proved their theory. The public, first sympathetic to Antoinette Robinson, who'd gone before camera several times to plead for the return of her daughter, now began to turn on her and her boyfriend. They began to believe that the couple was involved in Ziana's disappearance, or at least partially to blame. The couple gave interviews on camera, sitting in their disheveled bed, chain-smoking cigarettes and drinking sodas while professing their innocence. Community members who'd spent many hours searching for Ziana began to criticize them as irresponsible and lazy. Stories emerged as well that portrayed Ziana as a neglected child who wandered the hallways and streets surrounding her apartment building with her mother nowhere in sight. An account of Ziana being locked out of the apartment at night was reported to the media. Tony Robinson denied these allegations, saying that Ziana was only locked out once, and that was only because she did not know that Ziana had been locked out of the apartment after missing the school bus. But the on-camera interviews the couple participated in were spent by them complaining that they were being treated as suspects by the police and FBI. They believed they were being followed by investigators and FBI agents, and most likely, this was true. Both Robinson and Turnbow had lied to the police from the first moments they had reported Ziana missing, so investigators had a very good reason to suspect them and keep tabs on them. The night that Stephanie Kahelakulu arrived in California, a vigil was scheduled to be held for Ziana. Stephanie was asked who she was in relation to Ziana. She answered, I'm her mommy. After that, the story about how Ziana had been raised by Stephanie and her great-grandmother while her mother was incarcerated, and the fact that she'd only recently been reunited with her birth mother was reported in the media. Stephanie was shocked and saddened once she arrived in California and realized how Ziana had really been living. She worked closely with Kim Swartz on the search efforts. Stephanie made sure that the news outlets shared Ziana's description and photo with the public. With help from Kim Swartz and Mark Klass, Ziana's disappearance was featured on the national television program America's Most Wanted, just days after the search for her began. Stephanie also spoke to every reporter and news program she could get in touch with, on and off camera, to keep the public aware of the ongoing search for Ziana. She also worked closely with the police. The public now rallied around Stephanie, viewing her as Ziana's true mother. This was no more obvious than when Antoinette Robinson was invited on the daytime talk show, The Lisa Gibbons Show. Taped before a live audience on January 28th and aired a week later, both Robinson and Mark Klass were interviewed. Klass told the audience that Ziana's disappearance was emblematic of what had gone wrong in American society where the welfare of children was concerned. Quote, This little girl with the infectious smile grows up on the pristine beaches of Hawaii, and then one morning she wakes up under a 40-watt light bulb in a walk-in closet in a dingy little tenement in downtown Vallejo, Klass said. Ouch. Mark Klass has never been one to mince words. 
Robinson, a full-figured woman of 30 with frizzy dyed auburn red hair, wore a low-cut top that showed off a tattoo on her breast, which was reported on and critiqued negatively by the public and the media. Rather than her moment on national television gaining her sympathy and serving as a way to focus more attention to finding Ziana, the audience quickly turned on Robinson. They called her a liar, and she was booed after describing the life Ziana experienced in her care before her disappearance. She and Turnbow fought in front of Ziana, she admitted. Sometimes these fights became physical. While Robinson perhaps scored points for honesty, she did nothing to redeem her reputation with the public, who considered her an unfit mother. While Robinson and Turnbow continued to be considered persons of interest, investigators didn't have enough to charge them with a crime. In fact, the only thing they did know was that Ziana had vanished. From where, when, and by whom were all questions that had not yet been answered. The weeks, then months with no sighting of Ziana, dragged on. Then in early August, a full eight months after Ziana's disappearance, police zeroed in on another suspect. 21-year-old William Perkins Jr. was arrested on a domestic violence charge in August 2000. He was a known associate of Bobby Turnbow, so police interviewed him again to determine if he could have been involved in the Ziana Fairchild case. Investigators learned that Perkins had a criminal record, which included allegations of spousal abuse and sexual assault involving two children. He'd also been charged with possession of child pornography. The crimes against these children occurred between November 1998 and July 1999, according to a criminal filing. Investigators now learn that Perkins had, in fact, spent the night sleeping on the couch in Robinson and Turnbow's tiny studio apartment on the evening before Ziana disappeared. Perkins was picked up and charged with spousal abuse, statutory rape, sodomy with a minor, oral copulation with a minor, and transporting child pornography into the state. He pled guilty, but continued to maintain that he had no involvement in the Ziana Fairchild case. Then, just days later, Another child, almost the same age as Ziana, would also go missing from Vallejo while on her way home from school. The startling outcome of that case would finally reveal a predator and lead to possible answers about what happened to Ziana Fairchild. That story will be part two of this series, released next week. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Thank you for listening and sharing the show with a friend. Don't forget, you can support the show by becoming a Patreon member. Patreon now gives you several options to choose from to show your support. Besides the five tier levels we've created for you to choose from, you can now also pledge in euros, British pounds, or US dollars. As well, you can choose to pay monthly or save money by purchasing an annual membership. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to find out more and sign up. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, stay safe and be good to one another.